Last week we looked at the, uh, in Genesis chapter 4, the descents of Adam through Cain. We discovered the Cainites were an ungodly people. There was great wickedness uh, in that line, those descendants of Adam. But the final verse of chapter 4 gave hope. Look at the end of chapter 4, it tells us that Seth uh, was given to Adam and Eve after the death of Abel. You remember that God accepted Abel. He accepted, he had regard for Abel and his sacrifice. Abel was killed by Cain, and so Seth replaced Abel. And through Seth, the seed of redemption that God had promised in Genesis 3, that would come through the line of Seth, be passed all the way down to Jesus Christ. Now, the line of Seth were still sinners. There, there's no doubt about that. All of Adam's descendants, including us, are. But you'll notice in chapter 4 and verse 26, it tells us the descendants of Seth begin to call on the name of the Lord. What does that mean? It means they recognize their inherent uh, sinfulness. They knew they could not cover their sin. They no, knew there was no way that God's wrath could be appeased by anything that they could do. So they begin to call on God for his mercy and for his grace. And they called on God and, and sought to be in the presence of God, unlike Cain, who walked away from the presence of God. Now, if you have read ahead, uh, as we're studying through Genesis, at first glance, chapter 5 may appear it doesn't have much for us. It's just another boring genealogy similar to the one in, in chapter 4. You know, I think very few, I, I know a handful, but very few people today spend much time studying their genealogy. At least they don't go back more than maybe... Uh, two or three generations. It just doesn't seem that important to them. So you have to ask the question, why did God give us this genealogy? What does he want us to understand from this listing of the patriarchs? Well, let's look at it. Genesis chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, it says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth for 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years. Say it with me. And he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years, had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared for 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived, I hope you guys in the venue are joining us as we walk through Scripture. You're saying this together with us. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. 
Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech 782 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toll of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Well, four key facts before we dig into the verses, four key facts or, or lessons, I think, from this genealogy. The first is that the line of, of Seth recorded here in Genesis 5 is the line of blessing. It is a messianic line. Some 2,300 years or so from this point, Jesus is going to declare himself Messiah, and they will be able to go back and trace his lineage right straight back through these people listed here all the way to Seth. Remember, Seth represents the the godly, righteous line from Adam, as opposed to the line of Cain. The second thing we see in the genealogy is this. This is the only uh, authentic history from the time of creation to the flood. There, there's no other credible record uh, of this period of time. And the lineage is direct from firstborn to firstborn to firstborn. The numbers calculate exactly. While there are many people who would say that from the point of creation or even before creation, there were eons of time and millions of years, and there was evolution on all kinds of mutations and natural selection, this genealogy reveals the true age of the earth and of man. Listen, the Word of God is literal. And so this genealogy that we're reading here in Genesis 5 is a literal genealogy of real people. So we have a precise, exact timetable that tells us from the moment of creation until the flood, which we'll get to next week, that era was 1,656 years from creation to the flood. Now, that doesn't allow time for all the theoretic evolutionary processes that some scientists claim. And let me stop here and insert this. Let me, let me remind you that anyone who refutes the biblical account of creation and the biblical history of man refutes all of the Word of God. You can't pick and choose and say, well, this is literal, or, or this part is symbolic, but it means this literal. You, you can't pick and choose. Either if, if the Word of God is not true at any point, it's not true at every point, and God cannot be trusted in any way. So we have to believe the Word of God as God has given it to us. And you'll see the precision of this genealogy repeated in 1 Chronicles chapter 1 and also in Luke 3. You see the same genealogy. It's an accurate historical record of what happened from the creation of Adam to this point all the way to the flood, and then it'll go beyond that in the next weeks. Third thing you see in this genealogy, third thing that we discover from it is we see there was a tremendous increase in the population on the earth. God had told Adam and Eve to be fruitful, to multiply. You'll notice most of the people live close to a thousand years. And because people live close to a thousand years, over the 656-year period, there weren't a whole lot of deaths. And it also appears they were quite productive. Even though the lineage only goes through the firstborn, you see continually the phrase, other sons and daughters. And, and look at the age they were having children. 130, 105, 162, 187. 
Anybody in here accomplish that? I think not. And they probably could have had children, because of the length of their life, they probably could have had children over a span of 300 to 400 years or more. Now, some of you women, that's exhausting, isn't it? Can you imagine having children, no telling how many, probably dozens, can you imagine having children for three or four hundred years? There was a huge population explosion. By, by the time of the flood, conservative estimates of the population of the earth would have been in the hundreds of millions. Even, even a billion would not have been unthinkable. So the genealogy shows us the explosion of the population. Well, here's the fourth thing. In addition to the lineage of Messiah in the genealogy, the accurate timetable it gives us, the the explosion of the population, this genealogy also reminds us of the consequence of sin. We said it several times together. It was what? Eight times. And he died. And he died. So we're reminded that the judgment of sin is the reign of death we see here in Genesis 5. Kim Ham, Ken Ham, who wrote a, uh, a biblical commentary in the book of Genesis, told about a friend who invited a lost uh, friend of his to church. And when the friend agreed to come, uh, this man called his pastor and said, hey, listen, my lost friend's coming to church. I need you to preach a really good message on salvation this next week. So they got to church that Sunday, and when the pastor got up to read his text, his text was Genesis 5, and he read Genesis 5. And this man was just stewing. He could not believe how insensitive the pastor was. He couldn't believe that he would read such an incredibly boring passage and amazingly, at the response time, this man watched his friend get up and go down to the front and speak to the pastor and, and walk out with a counselor. And so he asked him after the service was over, and he called up to him, he said, what, what, what happened this morning? And the friend said, well, I decided I needed Christ. Well, how in the world did you decide that? He said, I heard your pastor read over and over again that phrase, and he died. And I knew that one day I was going to die, and I needed to make some kind of preparation for eternity. He died. He died. He died. It's judgment, but it's also a reminder of the need to prepare for the life that's to come. Do you know that history records that King Philip of Macedon, the father of Alexander the Great, gave one of his servants a very unusual task. He told the servant that every morning he was to awaken him with the words, Philip, remember, you must die. That's why his advice when you think about the brevity of life and the longevity of death, it would certainly give you cause to pause and, and to think about what happens after this life. Well, how does our view of death impact how we live? That's probably the first application point today. Have you thought enough about death that it would impact the way you live? And let's be honest, when you're younger, you don't think about death a lot. When you're in the prime of your life and there is much you could do to honor the Lord, you probably aren't thinking about it, but you need to think about it. George Bernard Shaw said the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one, people die. We need to remember that and think, since our years are limited, we need to consider what's limitless. Well, there's a lot of death that we saw in chapter 5, but there is some good news as well. The genealogy also gives us hope. We read about a man who didn't die. Enoch, down in verses 21 to 24, Enoch was delivered from death. He escaped divine judgment. And so right here in the book of Genesis, in the midst of the curse of sin and the death that occurs because of that, we have hope in life. 
When you look at Genesis 4 and Genesis 5, you see the continuing effect of sin, but also you see the faithfulness of God. When you look and compare and contrast Genesis 4 and 5, you see a clear distinction between godless living and, and godly living. And that's what we're wanting to pursue today. Look in verse 1 of Genesis 5. He opens with, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Book simply means a written record, not a book like we would think of a book, but a, a written record. Now, we know, we said this when we started Genesis 1, nobody, no one but God was around at creation until day 6. And so, because Moses wrote the book of Genesis, we know that God gave Moses the words that, that he penned that we have today. But it's quite possible that at this point, Adam has recorded much of this genealogical history following creation, and then it was handed to Noah, who carried it with him on the ark, and then Noah eventually hands it down, not personally, but it gets handed down to Moses. Now, evolution teaches that man, uh, initially, when man first appeared on the scene, he was a very primitive creature. When he got through walking on all fours, he had to learn how to communicate, and then he had to learn or to invent writing. Well, the creation account makes it clear that man was created with language. Man could speak right at the beginning. So we shouldn't doubt that Adam also uh, would not have been able to write. Remember that Adam was made directly by God as a fully mature human being, meaning he was immediately able to communicate. We saw that. God gave him the, the uh, task of naming the animals. He had to have the ability to communicate. He walked and talked with God in the garden. So it's very possible this genealogical record was penned by Adam and then carried by Noah on the ark and continued by Noah or perhaps his son Shem through who the messianic line would continue. Well, we see in verse 5, the birth of Seth is mentioned. We're told that Adam lives another 800 years. His lifespan was 930 years. Now, if you had time, and you're pretty good with numbers, if you sat down and you charted out uh, the years in this genealogy and you charted out all the births and and the deaths from Adam Ford, you find something very fascinating. L let me ask this question first. How many of you ever met, meaning you were alive at the same time, you may have been an infant, you don't remember, but ever crossed paths in this life on earth with your great-grandfather? How many of you know your great-grandfather? Real high, so I can see. Okay, pretty good number here in the room. I'm, I'm assuming it's similar in the venue. How many of you ever met cross paths with your great-great-grandfather. Uh, okay, I don't know. There's a couple very young ones up there. I don't know what it looks like in the venue, but it's pretty unusual for many of us to get beyond great-grandfather. Now watch this. From Adam to Noah, there are ten generations. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Kenan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah. Adam lived in nine of those ten generations. Nine of the ten generations Adam saw. Then in verse 28 and 29, it says Elamic, and that's not the same one in Cain's line, was the father of Noah. Okay? Elamic was born in the 874th year after creation. You remember when Adam died? What year? 930. So Lamech was actually 56 years old when Adam died. That means that Lamech met his great, 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 great grandfather. 
56 years old before he died, before Adam died. Now, that's really neat, but why is that significant? I think that further validates the authenticity and reliability of these genealogies and the timeline and the history, not only through this time, but we're going to see the same thing through the flood and up to Abraham. These weren't stories of family history that were handed down every 50 to 60 years like, like ours are. You ever play the game of gossip? You know what I'm talking about? I'm not talking to you ladies who gossip. I'm talking about a game. Men gossip too. Please don't send emails. If you send emails, send them to jmiller at gsfpc.org. No, the game of gossip, the more people you have in the line, the more distorted the word gets, right? Well, when you look at, at this line, Adam knew all the history of the generations down to Lamech, the father of Noah. And then Lamech overlapped Shem, his grandson. That's the son of Noah through, through the lineage of Jesus. The, the lineage of Jesus is traced through Shem. He overlapped Shem, overlapped Shem by nearly 100 years. And Shem was still living at the time of Abraham and Isaac. Shem is generation 11. Abraham and Isaac are gen generations 20 and 21. And Shem is still alive. Okay, wh what does all that mean? Isaac died 2,288 years after creation. So, there are just four men, Adam, Lamech, Shem, and Isaac. Those four men span the first 2,300 years of history. What I'm trying to say to you is this, accurate truth was handed down. We know the actual timing, we know the actual history. There weren't scores of stories handed down through every 50, 60 years through the generations that were embellished and, and turned into legends with very little semblance of truth. What we have here again confirms to us that the Word of God is accurate and it's reliable and it's truthful. Verse 1 and 2, they echo the creation. You see, they echo God's design. It's as Adam is reminding us of what God had done in, in creation. God created Adam, who was unlike any other creature he had made. Why? Because Adam was made in the image of God. He had immediate and instant communion with the Father. He's a spiritual being. He's an eternal being. He has an eternal soul. Notice it also says God created man, male and female, two genders by which procreation would occur to perpetuate creation, to fulfill the command that they were to fill the earth. Verse 2 says he named them Man. Now, why, why did he name them? They were male and female. Why did he name them man? Because they represent all of humanity. In, in Adam and Eve, we see our story. We are, we are from Adam, and we were in Adam when he rebelled. We are sinners because of the rebellion, and the story of Adam and Eve is our story. We're rebellious. We're fallen. Verse 3 says that Seth was made in the likeness and image of his father. Now, remember, Adam was made in the likeness and the image of God. But Seth and, and all of those who follow are made in the likeness and image of their father. And unfortunately, that image includes for us as human the fact that we are sinful and that there are consequences to our sin. Fortunately, Seth, all the way down through us, were also able to carry the image of God. God made us as spiritual beings. We can have a relationship with him, and, and that's what he made us for. Well, verse 5 said that Adam dies. 
930 years before sin had its full physical effect. They were told in the garden when they ate from the tree they would die. They instantly died spiritually. But God, in his graciousness with Adam, in spite of all the rebellion and heartache that Adam had caused God and all mankind, God very graciously gave him 930 years on the earth. Why is that important to us? It's a good reminder of the grace and the mercy of God. He's a God who saves. He's a patient God, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to eternal life. He, God withholds what we deserve, and he treats us with kindness we don't deserve. And sometimes we forget that, and we take advantage of it. Paul in Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 said that we're not, the kindness of God is not meant to be taken advantage of, but the kindness of God is meant to lead us to repentance. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. When we see the kindness of God and the mercy and the grace of God, that should draw us to a state of repentance. Now think for just a minute what Adam had seen in these 930 years. He had experienced brokenness in his relationship with God. He would experienced the effects of sin in his life and on relationship. He's, he's lost his place in paradise and he's inherited a hard life. He's seen one son murder another. He's seen both the line of Cain and the line of Seth uh, played out and seen the difference in godly living and and godless living. He had a a graphic experience in seeing what his sin had brought on humanity. As I think about all that Adam saw and the consequence that he saw, sometimes I wonder if we need a more graphic experience of the devastation our sin causes. I think if we really understood the devastation of sin, we'd be a lot more thankful for forgiveness and a lot more obedient in staying away from, from sin in our lives. Well, verse 5 on, and I won't read it all to you again, the genealogy that follows has a very standard pattern until you get to verses 21 to 24. And that's where the pattern's broken. Enoch, different Enoch from the line of Cain, but Enoch, the name means dedicated. He was devoted to God. He walked with God. You see it mentioned twice there in those four short verses that he walked with God. And then it says he fathered Methuselah and other sons and daughters. Now, Methuselah is a name that many people know. Even people who don't study Scripture, they know the name Methuselah. In fact, they use it in comments like this. I don't know if you know a Ray Bearden. Ray's a friend of mine, but you might not know him. He's older than Methuselah. That's how we use it. Right, Ray? Older than Methuselah. But there's something else I want you to know about Enoch that's not mentioned here in Genesis. Uh, We know there were many, many wicked, ungodly people on the earth at this time, most of them the descendants uh, of Cain. And all the people alive at this time really had no excuse. They knew about God. Why? Because they were descendants of Adam. Adam knew the true God. Adam knew what paradise was like. He had likely told them stories of walking and and talking with God in the garden. He had certainly told them about the curse and why the world was the way it was. Adam had firsthand information that all these generations would have heard. The problem was that some of them, even though they heard, they didn't believe and they rejected the truth. Many ignored the truth that Adam passed down about God. And among those who rejected the truth, there were certainly false teachers, those who would propagate lies about God and and sin, just exactly like Satan did in the Garden with Eve. Now back to Enoch. You've got all these wicked people, 
you've got the line of, of Seth, which is a godly line. There's something about Enoch that you don't find unless you go to the book of Jude. Jude is the next to the last book in the Bible. It's very short. It's just one chapter. The book of Jude was written to warn the church about false teachers, those who spoke against God. And in the midst of this warning about false teachers, in verses 14 and 15, Jude tells us something about Enoch. Listen to what he says. It was also about these, what is these referring to, false teachers? It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. You know what that tells us? Enoch was the first preacher in the Bible. We'll see when we get to Noah. You've probably heard before that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. But Enoch, seventh from Adam, was the first preacher who confronted liars and deceivers. He walked with God and he spoke for God. He warned the people of the judgment that was coming. You know that we have the same role and the same responsibility. We, we can't just be in it, just in salvation and in relation with God. We can't just be in it for ourselves. Enoch didn't walk with God and encourage only his immediate family to walk with God. In the midst of this perverse and wicked generation, he spoke out against the corruption of his day. He spoke out against the rebellion against God, and he warned of coming judgment. I don't think that was likely a very easy thing in that generation. His firstborn son is named Methuselah. God probably gave him that name. It's a very unusual name, and I think God gave it to him because God was speaking of what was to come. The name Methuselah means a shooting out or a shooting forth. Methuselah is the longest man who ever lived, 969 years. And guess what happened the year that Methuselah died? We'll see this next week. But you know what happened the year that he died? The flood. The very year that Methuselah dies, the flood begins. So I think just in, in, in naming him and God telling Enoch to name him Methuselah, Enoch got the message. The judgment was coming. In the year 1656, those flood waters shot out from the earth and judgment shot out on the people. And so Enoch wisely walks with God. He, he preaches, he warns people, he prophesies that judgment is coming. God is giving people time to turn to him before his wrath falls on mankind. Any of that sound familiar? You know that Jesus said in Matthew 24, as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. What, what is he talking about the days of Noah, the, the wickedness? Just as it was wicked in the days of Noah, at the time that the Son of Man is preparing to come, there will be a great level of wickedness. He's telling us there's a judgment that's going to come and, and people need to be warned by those who know God and those who walk with God. Do I think that the wickedness of our days is equivalent to the day of Noah? I have no idea. But I don't think any of us in this room, any of us in, in the venue, any of us watching online would doubt that we live in incredibly wicked days. Verse 24 tells us Enoch was one of only two men who, who never died. The other was Elijah, by the way. 
Now, why was he taken up by God? Why, why did he not see death? All we're told is that he was, he was pleasing to God. Well, people today are pleasing to God, and, 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 and we see death. And unless, unless Jesus comes, we're going to see death. So what is this here for? What is the message to us? I think the message of Enoch is that for those who walk with God, we will escape death. Those who walk with God will, will conquer death. Well, you just said we're going to die. Physically, yes, we're going to die. But consider the words of Jesus in John 5, 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So those who walk with God and die physically are going to conquer death. If you've been to a funeral that I've officiated, you have likely heard me say, uh, our, our brother or our sister has not died. Now, are they physically dead? Is there, physically, is there a dead body there? Yes. But this is not life. This is just what we're experiencing here is just a shadow of what true life is. I believe when a person who is in Christ physically dies on this earth, they simply cross the threshold and they transition from the shadow of life to real life and to true life. Those who walk with God and die physically will conquer death. But interestingly, if Jesus comes, not all of us are going to die physically. Some of us, just like Enoch, are going to just be taken up. Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, they were concerned as, a, as new believers, as a new church, they had been told, they had been taught that Christ, whom they had never met, they'd not been alive on the earth when he was crucified, but they had been told that he had been resurrected, he was seated at the right hand of the Father, and one day he'd be coming back for them. And some in their body had begun to die, and they became very concerned, well, what's going to happen to those who have died? Are they going to miss the return of Christ? Are they not going to be a part of him coming for his church? And so Paul wrote these words, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, the voice of the archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Listen, the encouragement is this. If you're in Christ, whether you die physically or whether you're taken alive, you're going to have life. You're going to defeat death. You're going to defeat sin. You're going to have life in Christ. That's true for all who are in him. Well, next week we're going to get to the story of Noah and to judgment and, and preservation, but, but we've got to look as we look at chapter 5 at, at this genealogy, we've got to ask, well, what is the truth that the Spirit might want to speak into us this morning from, from the passage? One very simple thing I think is that it ought to speak, speak greater confidence in the Word of God so that we won't be shaken when we hear people in our day attack Scripture. They're constantly attacking Scripture. They're constantly calling this a book of fables. When we really dig in and, and we see the truth of Scripture, it should give us greater confidence. We, we should be able to believe that all Scripture is inspired by God. And it's all true without error. There are no fables in this book. What God has said is exactly what it is and exactly what it's going to be. 
I think a second point of application, I'll give you a New Testament application to go with what we just read. And he died and he died and he died. Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed once for man to die. Listen. And after this comes the judgment. We need to remember that we are going to stand before God one day. If we're in Christ, it'll be at the judgment seat of Christ at the Bema where we'll be rewarded for what we've done. If we're not in Christ, it'll be at the great white throne judgment. The sheep and the goats are separated, and those who are not in Christ will be committed to an eternity separated from God in a very real place called hell. A lot of death in chapter 5, and it's not to drag us down, it's to warn us that unless Jesus returns, every man, every woman, every boy and girl is one day going to die. I want to be prepared for that. I think a third very clear point of application of Genesis 5 is that we have a responsibility just like Enoch. We're possibly living in the days of Noah that Jesus talked about in the book of Matthew. And if that is the case, judgment is imminent, and we need to warn the world. Who's the world? It's those that God has placed around us. That's the starting place. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 said that we're ambassadors for Christ. He said we're imploring people, we're begging people to be reconciled with God. We've been given the ministry of reconciliation, of helping someone who's apart from God know who God is, know of his love and his grace and mercy, and reconcile them to God. That's the ministry we have. That's what God has called us to do. Well, there could be many other things that God has spoken to your heart from Genesis chapter 5, but I think it's important for us to just take a moment and, and ask the question, Lord, what are you speaking to me? And, and, and remember, he doesn't speak just to hear his voice. He speaks and he calls us to respond and to obey. Let me ask you to bow, those of you in the venue, if you would as well, to bow your heads with me for just a few moments. And just to listen. Just to take a moment and listen. What has the Spirit of God said to you through his word this morning? And how is he calling you to respond to the truth?